Welcome to Rhonda NP's Menopause Guide Podcast with Rhonda Jolliffe, nurse practitioner, hormone expert, and menopause mentor. Balance your menopause experience with natural solutions and regain control to live the life you love. Let's get started. Hi, you've made it to the Menopause Guide Podcast with Rhonda NP. I'm Chris Doctor, your co-host, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Rhonda Jolliffe. It's our mission to bring you information to inspire, motivate, and empower you during your perimenopause and menopause experience. So today's topic is very sensitive and one that many women suffer in silence with. And according to our guest expert today, many women wait an average of seven years before even seeking treatment. Our topic today is the pelvic floor and all the challenges women may face, such as incontinence, urinary tract infection, pelvic prolapse, and bowel disorders. Oh my God, so many things we get to experience as women, right? We're so lucky. Anyway, we are super lucky today to have the soft-spoken, incredibly knowledgeable, and lovely Melanie Schlittenhart with us. Melanie's private practice, Pelican Health, is a place for answers. She has been specializing in this area for more than 15 years. In today's episode, we get into some of the details all about these things, as well as the treatment options. Melanie has some great resources to share with you as well. If you've just discovered this podcast, we want to welcome you and let you know we have a lot of other information available on our website, rondanp.com. There's a menopause quiz, other podcasts, free resources, and even an online mini course if hot flashes are your big challenge right now. We also have our signature course, Menopause 101, that's part of Menopause University. And recently, we made a really big change. We used to open and close the course over a couple times a year, but we've decided just to keep the course open all the time going forward. We felt like opening and closing it was putting up way too many barriers for women because when you need information, you need it right now. So if you're interested, please check it out. Anything we mention in the episode of note, we'll make sure to put the links and other supporting information for you on our website, because you know what? We've got you covered. And one more favor, if you would, depending upon where you're listening to this podcast, could you provide a quick rating and review and subscribe to it? That will help other women find this information when they really need it. So with that, let's hop into the episode. We think you're going to love it. Well, hello and welcome to the Menopause Guide podcast with Rhonda NP. My name is Chris Doctor and I am one of the co-hosts. And today we are joined by Rhonda Jolliffe, who, who is the other co-host, and our special guest, Melanie Schlittenhart, who is here to talk to us about a very important topic uh, having to do with incontinence and some other things regarding the pelvic floor. So we're going to get into that very quickly. But to quickly introduce her, Melanie is a board certified nurse practitioner and doctor of nursing practice with 15 years of clinical practice, specifically focusing on the pelvic floor. So Melanie, thank you so much for joining us here today. And would you please just kind of give us a little background about you and um, so our listener can understand what um, you are bringing to her today? Sure. Thank you for the invite. I'm I'm really pleased for the to have the opportunity to visit with you. I love talking about the the bladder and our pelvic floor. I love giving um, information and educating and whoever will listen um, about our bladder. 
because it really has quite the impact on our quality of life. And I um, certainly didn't go into nursing or um, plan on being a nurse practitioner that specialized in the pelvic floor. In fact, um, my mom and I giggle about this because even way back in my undergraduate days when I was going to, to college, I, I actually went to college first to to be an educator. I wanted to be a coach. I was going to be a basketball coach and I was going to teach in the high school and it just wasn't fitting. And so one day, you know, my mom was a nurse and she'd encouraged me all my years of growing up to be a nurse. And I think because she, my mom was telling me that I kind of pushed against that a bit. And so one day when I was in college, when I decided not to be a teacher any longer, and, and I had this revelation that yes, nursing was the, the avenue I should go. I thought, well, mom should be the first to know. So I called her and um, said, hey, mom, I decided to, to, to to switch up my degree and I'm going to be a nurse. And I was accept, you know, expecting this really big, you know, congratulations. I'm so excited. But in, instead, I got this long, awkward pause. There was a silence on the other end of the phone. And the words that came back to her were, to, to me, she said, Mel, um, wow, you know, that's, that's great. But, you know, in, in nursing school and as a nurse, you do have to do um, you know, catheterization sometime. And and I thought of all the things that she could have said to me, of all of the concerns she could have expressed, it was over these catheterizations. And and it was because she knew my personality it was a little modest, it was kind of bashful, and and she just couldn't imagine me doing so. So I just think it's so ironic. And I think God works in just really funny ways and has a great sense of humor and how it comes back. And then this is what I do all day long. Um, so my mom's fear is is back to haunt her that um, I'm working with pelvic floors, but it has been such a rewarding journey. I am so blessed that this is how I get to help people all day long because it's a very vulnerable and sensitive subject. And um, I do my best to, to make it as comfortable as possible so that women and men and children feel comfortable coming to me and asking for help. Because sadly, when, when an individual begins to experience incontinence, it takes them seven years to gain the strength and the nerve and the courage to ask somebody for help. And wow. so I'm, I'm happy to be that person that they can come to and ask for that help. Wonderful. Now, before we get started, Rhonda, could you just uh, briefly talk about, you know, you specialize in treating perimenopause and menopause. How many of the patients that you treat would you say would um, have the issues that Melanie would see that uh, in their in her clinic? Do you refer a lot to Melanie? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, obviously, it is quite common, uh, as we've talked about before with menopause. Um, yeah, it's really common. And I just want to take a moment to and just really um, thank you, Melanie, for being on today, because I have had the most utmost respect for Melanie over the years. And I've seen her in action, and I get reports from patients. And it's always just these wonderful reports of this awesome person. And boy, I just this is like, here's what a patient says to me. Do you know what they do? And I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and so they're like, I mean, it's really awkward, but they make you feel comfortable. And Melanie's always done that. So she really is the expert in her field. And so I am so pleased to have her here because yes, this is a very common problem. And 
Um, I found that statistic of seven years very interesting. And I think when I really look at clinically, uh, that's right on, you know, because people will tell me I've had this for years and I just, you know, not comfortable talking to it. And most people don't even talk about it unless I ask the question. So that's always. And then with menopause, as we've discussed before, with the loss of estrogen, that brings on this whole new dynamic. And I think at menopause, it, it's it's kind of a time when people say, you know what, I don't want to put up with this anymore. Or they never even had the problem. And now they had the problem. And they went that long without it. And now it's an issue. And they're more apt to bring it up because they do talk about, you know, the vaginal dryness and the vaginal issues so much more at menopause. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely, that seven-year thing, it was interesting, but then I kind of had to think, you know, yeah, 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 that yeah. sounds about right. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for being here. And yeah, I um, can relate to the vulnerability topic because that's really what it is. That's a perfect word. So Melanie, what could you run us through when a patient first comes in and in at the top of the list here is urinary incontinence? What... Um, what is she experiencing? Let's focus on women in this, even though you do treat, treat men and children, um, since this is our listener. What would it look like for someone um, who first comes into a specialist like you? What Could you run us through what she would expect or what um, issues she brings to you? So the biggest uh, component of, of the visit with me is certainly um, education, because the the there is a, a miss conception that leaking is equal across the board, but there are different types of leaking. So first and foremost, we have to figure out what type of leaking we're dealing with because dependent upon the leak will depend upon the treatment. So the two most common types of leaks that we experience or that um, are reported to us are both stress incontinence and urge incontinence. And stress incontinence is uh, really, it's just when we exert and squirt. And so coughing, laughing, sneezing, jumping, twisting, some kind of an exertional force is behind it and you'll get the sudden squirt of urine. And it is, um, it is a dysfunction then of the urethra. And the urethra is kind of like the valve on our bladder. So when there's something wrong with the urethra, it will not stay pinched shut tight enough when that exertional force is placed and then the, the female will, will lose urine. It is most often... Uh, encountered or associated with pregnancy. So for those women that have had pregnancy and vaginal deliveries, those are the ones we most often see um, experience this problem. However, it's not exclusive to that population though either. Uh, it, it can run in the family. It can occur for some with somebody that's never had a child before, but maybe they have a chronic cough or maybe they have obesity or maybe they have chronic constipation. Those are things that also can set somebody up for stress incontinence. The other type of incontinence that is often reported is urge incontinence. And this is also referred to as overactive bladder or OAB. And many of us are familiar with this type of incontinence because of the media. We yeah. see a lot of TV commercials with this, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. Um, they want us to buy their bladder medications because bladder medications are how we treat um, or one way that we treat overactive bladder. And overactive bladder is when there's a dysfunction to the storage tank of our bladder. And so there's, we're having difficulty with holding our urine and we get symptoms of strong, sudden urges to get to the toilet and we can't get there fast enough. So we'll lose our entire contents of our bladder. So it has nothing to do with an exertion, has nothing to do with a cough or sneeze. It's just simply because we can't get to the toilet quick enough. 
And so dependent upon the dysfunction then will depend on how we, we treat that. Sometimes it's surgical, sometimes it's not. But there are a lot of uh, treatment uh, options and, and some of them are, are conservative, things that we can do at home. Some of them require prescription and again, some of them are surgery. Now, unfortunately, none of them are um, awesome. Uh, none of them are going to cure us. And that's why we have a whole uh, tool chest of, of treatment options because there's not one treatment out there that is awesome. And so my job then is to give the individual um, tools uh, to help manage their symptoms. That's good. So, and when you talk about the tools, can you just really briefly touch on a few of the top, you said natural or ones that they could start to try? Um, because I, yeah, that would be interesting, I think. Sure. So first with stress incontinence, we hear about Kegel exercises all the time. And um, and, and Kegels work. Kegels are an, an excellent way that we can all, we all should be doing Kegels, whether we've had babies or not, if we're a, a man or a woman, we all should be doing Kegels because we need to use that muscle or we are going to lose it. But the trouble with Kegels is that 60% of us are not doing the Kegel correctly. And, and even when we do receive a little bit of education or some coaching on a proper Kegel and, and we are doing it properly, 50% of us will find that the Kegel is not enough. And for those of us that the Kegel is enough, uh, if we ask that same individuals, individual 10 years down the road, 60% uh, of those individuals will find the Kegel is not enough any longer, that they need something more. So the Kegel is the cornerstone to, to bladder treatments, um, but sometimes it's not enough. So there are some wonderful tools um, such as the Impressa device. Impressa is, is from the Poise company. That too has been advertised on television quite a bit lately. It was released um, maybe two or three years ago now. Uh, Impressa is, is a lot like a tampon, uh, although its intent is not to absorb. The, the intent of it is to provide support. So it's placed vaginally, just like a tampon, and it works quite well. 90% of women do know improvements with their stress incontinence with Impressa device. Uh, the downside to Impressa is that if you lose urine all day long, you can only wear it for about eight hours. Uh, so you would awaken in the morning, put an Impressa device in, and you'd have to replace it later in the day. So there is a cost factor with it. They're almost $2 a piece, and so it can add up. Plus, that vaginas, if they are dry, as you guys have talked about before, um, vaginal dryness can be quite irritating if you're using Impressa device frequently. Mm -hmm. So easy to try. You can buy them at Walmart. You can order them online. Don't need a prescription at all. Super easy to try. So that's Impressa. Um, we we do pelvic floor rehab for for um, stress incontinence as well. Now, um, overactive bladder a little bit different. That's when that storage tank is not working correctly. So we watch what we're drinking. We can, um, you know, lay lay low a little bit with um, caffeinated products because those can be quite irritating to the bladder. And um, their bladder medications. The, the downside to bladder medications is that they have side effects: dry eyes, dry mouth, constipation. Uh, after six months of use of a bladder medication, there's a very low uh, refill rate, meaning that women aren't refilling them because they don't like them. They're not tolerating them well. They don't like taking the medicine. And it's quite, 
it's just not worth it to them. The, the outcome for taking that medicine is, is not enough for them to continue putting up with the side effects like dry eyes, dry mouth, and constipation. Um, but, but medicine can be quite helpful, but it will not cure. And so it's generally something that you take long-term. So those because are kind before of you go on, those are awesome. So yeah. which one of you wants to tell me how to do a Kegel exercise? <laughs> I'll tell the, I'll the expert I, as I'm standing here trying to do it. I'm like, okay, what is it now again? How would I explain this? Because I try explaining and it's like, I think Melanie will explain it better than me. Uh, well, you're, you're right though. There are certain kind of um, cue words that we have to use. And, and, you know, some people will say to me, well, I try to do a Kegel when I'm sitting on the toilet and I try to stop my urine, but I can't stop my urine. Well, even for those of us that are doing a Kegel correctly, once we've had a baby, it's really hard to stop our urine when we're on the toilet. In addition, if we make a habit of that, trying to stop our urine on the toilet, it actually isn't all that good for us. Um, there is some theory that we can reflux a little bit of urine into our bladder and we can get um, bladder infections or a little bit of a pelvic floor dysfunction. But if I could only have one cue or one coaching line that I could offer to women. It's the same squeeze that we use when we're trying not to pass gas. So we have a gas bubble and we're at the grocery store. Somebody's standing behind us and we don't want to pass gas. And so we squeeze it back. That's a Kegel essentially. It's the same muscle that passes through the urethra as well. Now I have never heard that one and that one's a good one. <laughs> That one is a good one because it's not just about trying to stop your urine. It's deeper into the pelvics and around into the back. So that's a great one. Yeah. Yes. It, it clicks for most yeah. individuals that, I mean, most people can hold back their gas. And so that one makes sense to most mm -hmm. people. Definitely. So in terms of some of the other things you treat, um, they're oftentimes during menopause, we know you can, women can get more urinary tract infections. So can you explain a little bit about why that happens, either Rhonda or Mel or both? Go ahead, Rhonda. Oh, oh. Um, well, during menopause, there's a, the uh, dryness that happens in the vaginal area. And the thinning of the walls of the vagina happen because of the loss of estrogen. And so they thin and they dry. And our vaginal wall, our bladder sits right on top of that vaginal wall. And so that thinness, the bladder sits down there. And there's not just thinness inside the vaginal area, but it really gets thin around the urethra and where we go to the bathroom, where our urine actually comes out. And so that tissue, it just kind of sets up more of a medium for bacteria because it's not as healthy as it used to be. Um, and then also when the vaginal walls get dry and thin, the bladder drops a little bit as well. And so you have that dropping, you have the thinness and you have the tissue around the urethra. So it just kind of sets up this medium for bacteria. And so it just is. And a lot of people um, at menopause too, more commonly, like after intercourse, will notice um, more bladder infections after intercourse too. That's quite a common thing. So, mm -hmm. so what's Absolutely. the best treatment then, Melanie? So with bladder infections, the best treatment is prevention. And, and it's kind of tough because when we hit that menopausal age, you know, there's nothing that's going to bring back our ovaries where we get that estrogen and that estrogen comes to that vaginal tissue. I mean, we're, it's not coming back. So we can either try to nurture that 
that tissue a bit more with moisturizers. So vaginal moisturizers can be helpful, but it doesn't go to the root of the problem. The root of the problem goes back to estrogen. And there's such a fear factor over estrogen use since the year 2000 with the Women's Health Initiative, a big study that put this, this fear of estrogen use in, in all of us. But the, the reality is that estrogen in the vagina is um, very safe. We really don't have um, studies that link vaginal estrogen to the big risk factors that are associated with oral estrogen. Uh, so for the right individual with the right education and right counseling, estrogen in the vagina is, is an awesome uh, treatment option for pre prevention. And there are three modes of estrogen in the vagina, we can use estrogen cream, which is, is lovely, although it's, it's messy. And so women do complain of that often. The estrogen tablet is an option as well. And my favorite is the estrogen ring because the ring is placed once and you forget about it and you don't have to replace it for three months. Um, unfortunately, estrogen is quite expensive. And so that is a factor that we often have to tend to as well. The peak effect of estrogen in the vagina in terms of preventing urinary tract infections is six months. So it's really important to educate women that not to get frustrated and just give up because they get an infection one month into the treatment to hang in there and allow their body time to heal and to rebuild that, that vaginal um, tissue. And so it does take a while before they know the benefits of estrogen use. Is the estrogen ring, do you put that in as a practitioner or does the patient do that? Yeah. It's a, it is a prescription. And so the first time I do put it in for them, most okay. women after that first time, when I give them a little instruction how to remove and to insert it, um, most women are ready to, to do it on their own. It, it is really um, quite easy and, and pretty comfortable to place as well. Some women come back a time or two just for more reassurance, um, but they get the hang of it really quickly. Is there anything um, you, either of you could suggest from a um, cleanliness or practice about not getting them? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I will <laughs> say that women think that they get bladder infections because they're not cleaning themselves well enough. And so they're almost embarrassed to tell me because they think that I'm going to assume that they're not cleansing themselves. Um, but the reality is that this has nothing to do with cleansing. This has to do with estrogen status. And, and in fact, women are often over cleaning their vaginal tissue. I tell mm -hmm. women to stop using soap on their vagina and quit using loofah pads and washcloths in their vagina. Well, we're so, mid-top because yes. <laughs> I think that's a lot of stuff that gets in our head when we're younger. And yeah. so education about that is really important. So that is good. That is good. Yeah. And I want to thank you for bringing that up about the fear of estrogen in the vagina because it's taking 15 years and now we are seeing that oncologists are even okay with giving a low dose estrogen vaginally for breast cancer women because it becomes such a quality of life issue. And especially for the younger that have not even gone through menopause, don't even know what this whole vaginal dryness thing is. And then they have breast cancer and they have to go through their treatments and all of the emotional issues. And 
now all of a sudden their relationship with their husband has changed because of their vaginal dryness. And, you know, I just really have tried educating that, you know, it is safe in the vagina and that is, can be a huge quality of life issue, even for mm -hmm. breast cancer women. And that we now know that, but it took that long because not only were um, patients fearful of estrogen, doctors were too. So many oncologists so, would say absolutely no estrogen. So yeah, thank you. Yes, absolutely. So Melanie, another thing that you, you treat is pelvic organ prolapse. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, pelvic organ prolapse is um, sometimes referred to as POP. And that is when um, something in our pelvis has lost um, some support and is weakened and it finds the weakest um, exit, which is the vagina. And so it has a tendency to fall into the vagina. I, um, I don't know. I don't know if this is the right way to explain, but I think of our pelvis as a house and I think of our bladder has its own room and the vagina has a room and the rectum has a room and they stay in their own room. But after we've had babies and after we go through menopause, the, those um, walls between the room weaken a little bit and, and the bladder and the rectum have it. They want to move into the vagina. It's like the party room. And so they start dropping into the vagina. And, and so that is essentially what a prolapse is, is when the bladder is dropping um, out or the rectum is. And sometimes the uterus can, if you still have a uterus or where the uterus once was, the top of the vagina can pop, start dropping out. Sometimes they all three drop out at the same time. And, and I've had, and I know Rhonda, you have had this as well, but sometimes women come think in and they think they have a cancerous tumor mm -hmm. growing out of their vagina. Oh, and, since and, their and, service. And, Yes. Oh, yes. Or yes. I would freak the hell out if that <laughs> Yeah, they do. <laughs> they do. Something is growing. Something yeah. is growing out of here. It's a really scary thing. Does and it they, hurt? They, they put it, it, it is uncomfortable when they sit. I mean, they do even describe it when they sit. You know, it's uncomfortable when they sit. They feel like something's coming out. They feel like there's a growth in there because mm -hmm. they might have felt around and, you know, they had never felt that before. So that yeah. cervix is pretty firm if you have a uterus and the cervix and that cervix is kind of firm and they feel that. Yeah, it's, it, it is. It's. So what do you do about that? What are, what are the options <laughs> for when that happens, when they want to go to the party room? What, what's yes, that about? Like your three-year-old yeah. at night? Yeah. Do you remember when your kids were young, the doors were always open? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I will never think of the party room the same now. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, goodness. Well, with with pelvic, with pelvic organ, organ prolapse, I mean, you know, we can do, it, it's a little dependent upon how it occurs. For some women, it's quite gradual. And they have it for years, and it's just gradually occurring. And then one day, they just suddenly notice it once it comes to a certain point. For other women, it's a little bit more acute. Maybe they have this, this terrible case of bronchitis, and they're coughing for two weeks. And at the end of that two-week coughing binge, that, that prolapse just becomes more pronounced. Or sometimes we have somebody that slips on the ice, and they fall and they feel a pop and that's that um that sudden drop of of um the the prolapse coming up to the to the vaginal opening and so it's a little bit dependent upon that history but regardless we start with with kegel exercises again and um we can for some women through just a simple kegel exercise and 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 employing that Kegel exercise on a daily basis, regular routine, they can get that prolapse to regress back. Almost a third of women can actually see that prolapse um, come back up a, a bit. 
we we rate prolapse in degrees and so for some objectively we can see a degree of that prolapse improve for some women they need a little bit more help and we can fit them with pessaries pessaries are um, they're kind of like a donut uh, they look like a donut um, and it, that donut can be fitted specific to the to the woman. Everybody has a different size vagina, different shaped vagina, and so we have to try generally a few different sizes, a few different shapes of pessaries where that's placed into the vagina then and can hold back the prolapse. Uh, for women that actually agree to use a pessary, only 50% of them will actually find it to be helpful and they'll keep it. Uh, the other 50% do not. And then if neither of those are great options or they're not working, they failed at those attempts, then surgical intervention would be the next step. Now that said, most of us that had children have some degree of prolapse. Um, Prolapse is very subjective, and some women will find them extremely uncomfortable with just a very low-grade prolapse, and some women will have an extreme prolapse and not be bothered by it at all. Mm -hmm. So the thing with prolapse is, is, first and foremost, how much does it bother you? And if it's bothersome, painful, um, having difficulty uh, urinating or having bowel movements or having recurrent bladder infections as a result, it's at that point then that we would um, push them a little bit more for, for surgical intervention. Okay. That's such a good point because sometimes, uh, you know, I will have women complaining and I examine them and it's, it's not that bad, but they mm -hmm. have all the complaints of prolapse. And then another woman, I, there is no complaints. And then I go and examine, I'm like, are you bothered by this? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's very obvious mm -hmm. and yet they're not complaining. So yeah, that's, that's a great point. And then the other, the other area that you treat that I think may be a problem for, for some women are bowel disorders. And that's again, the, uh, the room, that room is having problems. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what specifically a menopausal woman may experience um, related to bowel disorders? So bowel disorders, disorders, specifically fecal incontinence or bowel incontinence, this is a tough one because, you know, we have spent years in trying to get women to talk more just about their leaking of urine. And, and we're kind of behind, we're, we're behind the eight ball on this one a little bit with urinary incontinence, although we're catching up, we did not realize how, um, how much women were experiencing urinary incontinence because we, we didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about it and we didn't advertise it. When we went to the store to buy pads, we bought menstrual pads. We didn't buy incontinence pads because there was a stigma with, with urine loss. So we have um, underestimated the, the urine loss epidemic for years. But now that we have better awareness, we're catching up. We're coming up with more treatments. We're coming up with better awareness. The bowel loss, that's a tough one because nobody wants to talk about that one. And we have really underestimated the degree of fecal incontinence. Uh, the reality is there are many people experiencing fecal incontinence, some daily, some weekly, some monthly, but regardless, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to manage, especially socially. And people start to experience a little bit of fecal incontinence and they automatically withdraw from social events. Um, it's really hard to contain, they're afraid of odor. So what we have to date for fecal incontinence is first dietary things. If we can keep the stool a little bit more firm, uh, women have a tendency to leak less stool. And unfortunately, this is something that does occur more often in our menopausal years. 
And if dietary issues uh, or dietary changes are not helpful, then um, there are some surgical techniques, although nothing that's real great at this point. Um, there are some pessaries that are available now as well. In fact, there's a, there's a new pessary. Well, I shouldn't call it a pessary. It's a vaginal device that just recently was approved by the FDA. And there are certain clinics within um, each state that are being um, chosen to launch the product. In fact, oh. the clinic I'm at, Pelican Health, is um, was chosen as the, the clinic in North Dakota that could, could offer this vaginal um, device. And so it is fitted into the vagina and then puts a little bit of pressure against the rectum and um, vaginally, and then it can um, help detour from episodes of fecal incontinence from occurring. So it's tough. Um, there, there's, there are not a lot of, of options, um, but there are some out there. There is a surgical intervention in the form of a pacemaker for the pelvis. It's called an inner stem. It's a mm -hmm. device that's, uh, was, um, that's created by Medtronic. It looks just like a pacemaker, and that can be helpful as well. Interesting, interesting. Rhonda? Have you, oh, I just want to ask, have you um, seen good results with the Interstim? Right. Yes, actually, Interstim is indicated for both um, urge incontinence, urinary urgency, urinary frequency, incomplete bladder emptying, and most re recently is the fecal incontinence. And, and uh, I worked with Interstim patients for about nine years now. And of all of those diagnoses, uh, fecal incontinence is actually the one that does the best with Interstim therapy. If we can just get a little bit of a nerve stimulation into the pelvis, the bowel seems to do so much better. So I'm quite pleased with the results that we get with, um, with fecal incontinence from Interstim. Wow, Good. that's awesome. I mean, I, I, again, what you say in terms of the urinary and then the fecal incontinence, you can understand, you know, you've got to bring it into the light and it may be a long time. And that's why shows like ours, we just want to bring this information to the forefront so people know not to suffer in silence and that there's, so if somebody was, um, who, what kind of a specialist would you look for in your area if any of these issues were a, a challenge for someone? What, what type of healthcare practitioner should they go to? Well, that's a really good question. And it's, um, there, it's all, it actually has a multi-pronged approach. And, and I, I would encourage the, the listener to first do your homework because, you know, physical therapy is an awesome um, avenue to go uh, when you're trying to improve your pelvic health. The problem is that not all physical therapists are trained in pelvic pelvic floor health. And so you have to do your homework. Um, physical therapy is going to help you regain some um, muscular strength. And sometimes we have um, too much strength in some, uh, some of our muscles. And so we have to um, do some reprogramming with that. But physical therapists are a wonderful um, um, option to, to seek treatment. But do your homework. Ask if they've been specifically trained in pelvic floor therapy. The, the other option would be an OBGYN. Um, but again, you have to do your homework because some OBGYNs are not going to specialize in, in incontinence. Um, they might have um, be wonderful um, surgeons and, and providers in, in pelvic floor health, um, but not necessarily incontinence. Um, another avenue would be a urogynecologist. They do have more specific training. Um, unfortunately, urogynes are in a shortage and there are few communities 
uh, that have access to a urogynecologist. And then certainly nurse practitioners like myself that have specific training in, in um, continence management issues. So you have to do your homework. There's not a simple answer to this. There's not a one size fits all. Fits all. You, have to, you have to ask questions and find out. Now, I, I will say that even when you find a, a provider that offers this type of care, um, sometimes you you might not it might not be a good fit, or you might not get the answer you were looking for, or um, surgery might be the response that you get, but that doesn't feel right to you. I I would just encourage you not to quit asking. Um, just keep searching, keep looking, keep um, looking on asking friends, talking to friends about it, not being afraid to have that conversation because it, it does require a, a little bit of, of questioning and, until you find that right fit as in terms of, of receiving treatment. Definitely. Um, you know, when I we start, we're preparing for this, you gave us a really great resource, the National Association for Continence. Can you tell the listener what she can expect to find at that website? There are just a, a variety of resources. There's education. Um, there are there's access to finding providers and there's there's tools and this starts with education we have to better understand what's happening to our body and what the treatment options are out there you know there was um i think unfortunately it's been such a a disservice the the fear that was instilled in women recently with the mesh controversy um you know we've used mesh mid-urethral slings to help treat stress incontinence for quite a not while now, over 10 years. And um, we were getting really great results, but uh, unfortunately there were some problems associated with its use. And so now we see a lot of TV commercials out there about the, the lawsuits with oh, yeah. mid-urethral slings. And you know, you have to live under a rock to have not seen one of these commercials. <laughs> but unfortunately what that has done, it's it's been a, a good and bad thing. First of all, I think it has uh, forced women to ask more questions when treatments are being offered and not just to assume that it's a perfect fit because the surgeon or this provider is making this recommendation. It has um, prompted women to ask more questions. So that's been great. But at the same time, it has also instilled a fear in women too. Now there's this assumption that if they have incontinence and they ask for help, they're going to be offered surgery and they're afraid of that surgery. And so that has, I think, put a, a little bit of a damper on, on um, women asking for help. So the, the resource, the NAFC um, resource, um, the website, that is a safe way to educate without um, um, having fear that you're going to have to automatically sign up for surgery. It's a resource with great information. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're almost out of time. So what I would love to do is if you had um, both Rhonda and Melanie, if you have final thoughts for our listener, if she uh, herself or knows someone who is suffering with any of these challenges, what would be your, um, your final inspirational thoughts or thoughts to leave her with today? Rhonda, do you want to start? I can start. Uh, just just know that there's help out there. We do see a lot of practitioners that are now very interested in this area, physical therapists and nurse practitioners, um, urogynes. Uh, and so please uh, just know that there is help, um, that if you are suffering, that there is a lot of treatment courses that you could do. And some things are very simple and non-invasive that might work really well for you if you just get the ball rolling. 
Uh, so talk to your healthcare providers and um, don't be afraid to ask them. They've heard it before. You're not the first. There's actually many. And sometimes it's just a matter of hearing that you're not alone is a good thing too, because it, you do feel kind of that alone with it, but there's so many women out there that are suffering from the same thing. So if you do feel that way, please uh, reach out to your healthcare provider because there are a lot of options. And again, I loved what Melanie said about if you're not happy where you're at, and I've said this many times, look for somebody else because they're out there and just, you know, try and find the right match for you. And that that goes down to not clinical, um, that goes down to personalities and how you feel comfortable because this is an area that you really need to be feel comfortable with your practitioner. So I guess that, you know, that there is help. And if you're not happy with the help you're receiving, then search out for more. Good. Yeah. And, and I would agree with everything you just said, uh, Rhonda. I, I like the quote from uh, writer Michael um, Cunningham. He says that you cannot find peace by avoiding life. And I think that this is so applicable to women with incontinence because we, we have to um, find we have to find options and in order to better better manage our incontinence. And if we don't ask the questions and if we don't start doing our homework with it, that it's going to be something that weighs heavy on, on our hearts and on our head. And we're not going to be able to uh, go places because of the stressors that are involved with incontinence. Um, we miss out on life if we don't try to manage this better. Yes. So thank yeah, and, you for the opportunity, ladies, to educate more and to give women more comfort in, in asking for those, those questions. Absolutely, absolutely. So everything that we've mentioned today, if there's any uh, resources or links, we'll put those in our show notes at rondanp.com. So thank you, ladies, so much for being here. And to our listener, we hope you have a great day. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining the Menopause Guide podcast with Rhonda N.P. You'll find the show notes and other valuable information at our website, rhondanp.com. Don't worry about this menopause thing. You've got this.